as I've said, it's a terrible experience for the player and a terrible experience for the operator. In the UK, roughly around market average, roughly around 90% of players churn. When you reach out and ask them for financial data, which for us seems ludicrous, like you're losing 90% of your customers when you interact with them. I mean, it, it shouldn't be like that. Hey, this is Jesse here, and you're about to hear my discussion with Martin Burt from ClearStake, which provides accurate, real-time customer risk profiling. Martin talks about how ClearStake is riding the wave of open banking in the UK to streamline gambling affordability checks, the emphasis on customer source of funds and affordability within the recent UK government white paper on gambling reform, and his view on how the nascent US gambling market might learn from the more mature UK market. I've really enjoyed hearing Martin's perspective on the landscape, and I hope you do too. But just a quick reminder before we get going today, the Betting Startups newsletter is the only weekly publication dedicated to the industry's early stage ecosystem, and it's the easiest way to keep your finger on the pulse of it all. The 10 seconds it takes you to subscribe will be the highest ROI use of your time today, so head on over to news.bettingstartups.com and smash that subscribe button. All right, we are back. It is episode 73 of the Betting Startups podcast. And with me today, I have Martin from ClearStake. ClearStake, despite what some might think based on the name alone, is not actually a synthetic meat business, but rather focuses on affordability and source of funds, which is obviously a very crucial topic within the context of the betting industry. Martin, you're joining us from across the pond today. So first of all, just to check in, how are things going on your side across the Atlantic? Yeah, things are great. Thank you. I mean, I'm in London, so it's obviously raining. Now I see a little bit of... A little bit of clear sky. It's really British of me, isn't it? I'm already talking about the weather. Uh, yeah, things are good. And thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, looking forward to getting into this important topic, which we haven't really circled too much on the podcast through our first 73 episodes. So uh, really happy to have you here. But, you know, before we get into all of the details of ClearStake, maybe we can just start with a brief background on yourself, Martin. And if you could give folks listening a bit of a sense of your background and maybe some of the major chapters of your journey prior to founding ClearStake. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it wasn't trying to produce synthetic meat, so otherwise probably it's quite a good name to sell to your meat um, or one of the other companies. What's my background? My background, so I studied maths at university, went into financial markets and financial technology after that, and worked at several early stage startups, really enjoyed my tenure there and was really interested in technology and open banking and its application in, in financial services, especially. Then we found a clear stake initially as a payments business based on open banking. And the reason payments were really interesting is card acquiring is quite expensive, especially for gambling companies. And what open banking payment rails allow businesses to do is to accept payments and make payouts instantly at a fraction of the cost. And this becomes really exciting for gambling companies because there's a two-way traffic of money flow going in and out, which is expensive to take and expensive to pay out and open making payments later really, really quickly. So we had some initial traction in the, the gambling space and signed a contract early on. This was about the time that the UK government and the UK gambling regulators were starting to make a lot of noise about affordability. And it was the word on everybody's lips, affordability, affordability, affordability. What was really interesting was the market's reaction to the government and the regulator. It was this absolute panic mode of what are we going to do around affordability? What does it mean? How do we react to this? And there was a talk of a white paper coming out. I know we'll talk about that a little bit later. 
but that white paper took two years plus to, to surface. So what happened in that time? Well, as I said, we were there at the very start of this and speaking to the initial company who we were dealing with, seeing them try to figure out what to do with affordability, what it meant, and then speaking to other operators in the market to get their feedback on affordability. And we started digging into operator processes of what they were doing currently. And this became really, really interesting and which is why we moved away from the initial value proposition around payments and payment APIs into data and data APIs because of the, the initial process. So the way affordability was run at this point in time, so a gambling operator would use static data sets, so credit reference agency data, ONS data, which is in the UK as the Office of National Statistics. And this would go something like this. Um, Martin lives in London, therefore he can afford this much. Jesse lives in Wales, he can afford this much. So it's at best guesswork on the state of a person's finances. And that's great for an early warning sign, but it can't give a detailed, accurate assessment of a player's financial risk. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, you have operators reaching out to players and asking them to produce detailed financial documents, such as bank statements, payslips to analyze financial risk, which is frankly a terrible experience for the player having to go and download documents and email them to a faceless compliance officer at a gambling company. And it's also a terrible experience for the company who's then got to go and take that bank statement to all that document, go through it with a pen and a calculator and work out where's the money coming from, how many streams of income does this person have, what are their committed costs, what are their essential costs, what's the risk. So long way around of saying the process was broken back then and you had a long stretch of not doing this properly. And what we really wanted to do was get in there and help the operator solve this problem and say, look, there's a process that makes this really, really easy for you, makes it really, really easy for your players to engage with, and it de-risks you as a business. It de-risks you from the fines, the bad press that have been coming over the last several years, but at the same time allows you to give your players a great experience so they stay on playing with you. And that's sort of about where, where we got to. Gotcha. And, you know, you made reference to this a couple of minutes ago and we were going to come to it later, but I think actually let's, let's move it up front here, Martin, which is the UK white paper, right? Much has been made about the white paper. And as you say, it's been sort of a number of years in the making. And, you know, for the podcast here, much of the audience is North American based and, you know, may not necessarily have that sort of acute understanding of, of what the white paper even is or, or its importance from the perspective of the UK gambling market. So maybe just for the benefit of folks listening that might not be familiar, can you just quickly summarize uh, sort of what the UK white paper is and maybe some of the major takeaways uh, within it as it relates to affordability? Yeah, absolutely. So the UK white paper, why is it important? It's super important because it is the single biggest change to gambling legislation since the Gambling Act of 2005. Now, a lot has happened since the Gambling Act in 2005. And what I'm talking about here is the, the growth of the internet and the growth of online. So a lot has changed. And what the UK government is trying to do is update legislation to reflect changes in technologies, changes in consumer behavior, changes in products. So we've had a huge, huge internet boom and growth. And then off the back of that, a huge growth in online gambling, like a huge, huge market. And it's a far cry from the market of old, which is going down to the track and betting with rails bookies, right? And 
or going to the casino and having a nice hour with your friends, we now can bet on anything at any time of night. And, you know, you can have a casino in your pocket, as some people say, on your phone. And the market has evolved. But what didn't evolve was the regulation. So this is a attempt by the government and the regulator to bring regulation in balance with where they see the market at the moment. And that's substantial because as that market's grown, so have a lot of other aspects of that market. And I think one of the focuses around that is gambling harm. And they would like to add in aspects to the white paper, which is very varied, but some of it is around affordability to make sure that people aren't gambling beyond their means. Gotcha. No, I appreciate that context there. And, and we'll come back to that and maybe some comparisons between sort of the more mature UK market and the more nascent uh, US market. But before we get there, Martin, let's actually do a bit of a deeper dive now into ClearStake. You know, we've talked about sort of the problem space you've entered here, but let's talk a little bit about the solution you're bringing to market. Um, maybe just to start off with, can you give listeners a bit of just a high concept overview of the solution you have? And, and uh, you've sort of touched upon the value prop, but can you just sort of, I guess, summarize uh, the benefits that it brings to the end users and the customers? Yeah, sure. So the issue today is that, and this is happening today, white paper or no white paper, there is a need for operators to reach out to their players and ask for financial data. And as I've said, it's a terrible experience for the player and a terrible experience for the operator. In the UK, roughly around market average, roughly around 90% of players churn when you reach out and ask them for financial data, which for us seems ludicrous. Like you're losing 90% of your customers when you interact with them. I mean, it, it shouldn't be like that. And these are by the very nature of the fact they're going through these checks. These are, these are your best customers as an operator and you're losing them because of the process. Now there is a compliance wall there. Absolutely. And that compliance wall needs to be there for many different reasons. This is more than just affordability. This is source of funds risk, this is AML risk, this is markers of harm. So there are walls there that need to be there, but they don't have to put up the friction that they put up today. So essentially what our product does and what our solution and platform allows operators to do is to request and ingest data from a player in a seamless, efficient way, make a very quick decision, pass that back to the player so the player can go on and do what they want to do, which is have a bet. And the operator can do what they want to do, which is take the money from the player from the right sources. So yeah, take money, not from illegitimate sources or necessary from someone who doesn't have the money to spend. And it makes that process very, very seamless, makes it very, very quick and analyzes the risk of the situation in real time. Gotcha. And you mentioned, you know, how something like 90% of players churn when asked for financial data, which as you rightly point out is a, you know, an unfathomable number and, and really unsustainable. I'm just curious, Martin, like to get your assessment on sort of what drives that 90% churn when financial data is requested. And I guess ultimately what I'm curious about is the, the sort of open banking movement and, and I guess just sort of the general increased comfort that people are having with sharing their financial data. Like what percentage of that 90 do you sort of chalk up to people being unwilling to share that data versus sort of the, as you rightly point out, like the logistical challenges of actually delivering that, uploading statements, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess, yeah, like culturally speaking with open banking, like are people more willing now to share financial data and is that less of a barrier than maybe it used to be? Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic question. So I think the first thing to make your listeners aware of here, as it's more of a North American audience, I know open banking is more nascent in the, in the US, but it's been a huge movement in Europe 
and the UK. And essentially what it allows you to do is to share the data in your bank account with a provider at the click of a button or a couple of clicks. And the benefit is, for example, if you want to loan or if you want to mortgage or if you want to rent a property, when traditionally you'd have to share financial data, the old fashioned way, printing off pay slips, printing off bank statements, you can click a couple of buttons and share that data seamlessly. So it's a, a value to the and consumer and also value to the business so you can collect that data in a far more efficient way and do the analysis that they need to do so this is happening in the uk this happens in other sectors you know if you want to go and rent a flat in london it's becoming very very normal to link your bank account whereas you used to have to print off six months of bank statements take them to the estate agent or i think the realtor you, you call it outside yep. of the pond <laughs> and you'd have to prove that you had the income or the means to afford the rent or if you're buying a property, the lawyer will want to know where that money's from because they've got AML source of funds obligations. So if you're a lender, if you want to go and get a mortgage, that underwriter will want to know that you can afford to pay back the, the loan. So this is nothing new in open banking. It's just streamlining processes that have happened for, for decades. And the adoption rates are rocketing in these verticals it's not quite ubiquitous but it's it's going that way like we speak to many many sort of competitors but in other verticals and you see the adoption rate skyrocketing for the use cases i've talked about but then when you get to gambling there's still this process that needs to that needs to happen you need to share financial data but as you said we've got this ridiculous case of a churn rate of 90 percent now i can't give you hard and fast figures about the the makeup of their 90 percent but what i can say is that there are people that won't want to share their financial data whatever the reason they're they're, they're private people maybe they're wealthy people they just don't want anyone having access to the data we we don't dispute that that's a fact of life there are also people that don't want to share their financial data because they know they're not going to pass the check. Either they can't afford it or their money is from illegitimate sources and they don't want anyone to know. But there is a large swathe of the population that is happy to share their financial data and take the path of least resistance to do what they want to do, which in this case is put some money in their account and have a bet on their favorite team. And that, you know, that is there. And we don't hide this fact. We don't suddenly say to gambling operators, everyone's going to share their financial data because they think we were crazy if we said that was the case. But what we say is you can move the needle from 90% down to 85%, maybe 80%, 75% as adoption grows. That reducing churn or uplift in retention at these compliance processes has a huge impact on revenue for these organizations. Like that's a massive number. Absolutely. Um. You also just announced a new partnership with Hollywood Bets and, you know, presumably are in talks with numerous other operators. I'm just curious, Martin, if you can talk a little bit about just kind of what you're hearing in terms of feedback from these conversations. And I guess just a sentiment from operators around the general need for improved affordability check processes. Yeah, sure. That's a great question. Um, we're speaking to 45 operators across the UK, Australia, and a little bit of the UK at the US as well. I'm going to focus on the UK here because that's our home market and where we're, where we're focusing at the moment. What the operators have been saying for quite a long time, what we've been hearing is that we want clarity. We want clarity from the governments and the regulators. So we've been in this sort of holding period for a couple of years now where the regulator and the government have come along and said, 
legislation is going to change and there's been a lot of rumors about what that's going to look like, but only till recently did we have any clarity. And in fact, we still don't have perfect clarity because the white paper has been published. There still needs to be a consultation period over the summer of how the proposals in the white paper are actually going to be implemented. But for now, we've had more clarity than we've had for quite some time. So I think the operators are particularly happy about that. What I would say is this is bigger than just affordability. Affordability is only one piece of the puzzle here. There's also AML, there's source of funds, there's markets of harm, and there's the, the need to understand players' finances is not going to go away, whether that's for regulatory reasons or commercial drivers. And operators need a more elegant solution to collect and process player data. And it's our job to be that best in class and best in class solution to achieve that. And that's why companies like Hollywood Bets are, are working with us because they've, they've seen how the future's unfolding. They've seen how their current processes work and how they fall down. They've understood that there's a much better way to interact with their customers and receive and analyze data. And they've also understand that what they're able to then do is minimize harm to players minimize harm in terms of you know, source of funds, but also maximize revenue at the same time. And what you have there is this sort of drive towards sustainability. And I know sustainability is a buzzword and it's a buzzword in multiple sectors, but we say you, you, you can't, you can't take away harm. You can't stop it. You can't stop problem gambling, but you can certainly reduce it. You can take less money from the places you shouldn't be taking it and take more money from the places where you should be taking it by making it easier to do. And companies like Hollywood Bets understand this and other operators in the market are really starting to understand this as well, which is why we've seen the interest in our product that we've seen. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as you just mentioned, you know, your focus so far, primarily at least going to market, sounds like it's the UK and obviously looking elsewhere as well, including to the US. And just curious, I guess, through that lens, Martin, like, Comparing the UK, which, you know, as I mentioned, is a far more mature market versus the US, which is more nascent. I mean, just barely five years old now uh, after the past repeal in 2018. Just curious, like from your perspective, how you compare the two markets as it relates to the role of affordability checks in the ecosystem. And I guess, uh, I don't know, any predictions or foreshadowing, I, I guess, from you about maybe what we can expect to see in the coming years as the US market continues to develop and mature based on everything that's unfolded in the UK over the last 20-ish years since the Gambling Act in 2005. Yeah, okay. So there's a, there's a bit to unpack there. I'm going to, to do my best to do the first part. You might have to remind me of the second part. <laughs> yeah, essentially, I'm, I'm laughing because I, uh, I was told off on the floor of SBC for calling the American market a market and someone pointed out that it's actually the American markets, which gives it this, this really interesting dynamic, right? Which is, I'm sure you guys have talked about, and it's probably the topic of a conversation for another day, but I think in the U S it's about balance. I think what the U S has the opportunity to do is get the balance right. And it's about how to balance commercial and compliance. There's still no doubt a hint of that gold rush mode going on in the US since it opened up and that so drive to acquire customers at any cost and push on it is still there, but that, that will change and regulation will come in. It will come in state by state in different ways, but I feel that will happen that 
that narrative around responsible gambling affordability will we'll come to America and, you know, speaking to all stakeholders at SBC in New Jersey, nobody doubts that that's the case. It's just a case of, okay, just a case of when, but what I think the U S has the opportunity to do is look to other mature, mature markets like the UK and learn from what's gone well, where the failings were and get to the balance between regulation and commercial drivers quicker. That's where I, that's where I feel the U.S. You know, has the opportunity to learn. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, you know, shifting a little bit back to ClearStake specifically, I guess, as you think about just the overall landscape and the value proposition that ClearStake's bringing to market, what are some of the, I guess, maybe macro trends that you see that, you know, give you confidence that, you know, you're in the right place at the right time with the ClearStake opportunity? Yeah. So now what this does in a gambling space, there's a societal pressure and that then puts pressure on the governments and the regulator, which in turn puts pressure on the operators and the, and the space. Now, this is something we see as a, as a, as a global move. It's not just happening in the UK. We see it unfolding throughout the rest of what I call the Western regulated markets. It doesn't finish at the shore of the UK. For sure. And we're already seeing this happen. The UK is the the home of online gambling and all eyes have been on the UK, especially during this period of publication of the white paper. But we're already starting to see this happen. We're starting to see it in Australia, for example. You're seeing CEOs being pulled up in front of parliament. We're seeing, you know, the Northern Territory's consultation. We're seeing pokey machine reform in New South Wales. And then, as I mentioned earlier, being the other side of the pond, the SBC, nobody doubts that this is something that's coming. So there's that sort of, I guess, res responsible gaming narrative that we feel is, is circulating the world. And I don't know if anyone doubts that. There's another key driver for us, which is another key macro driver, which is technological advancements, right? You've got the advancements in, in technology, advancement in adoption of certain technologies. You've got the advent of open banking, which is big in the UK, Europe, Australia, and is coming to North America at the moment. And you've also got a younger player, you know, you, you've got a new generation, you've got a generation of Gen Z and they're going to have different attitudes. They're going to be betting on different things. They're going to have a different way of play. But what these players are willing to do is share their data to access the products and services that they want to access. So I think for us, those are the key, the key drivers. And also to mention the commercial drivers as well, which is, it's not just about regulation. It's not just about responsibility. It's not just about technology, but also it's about customer experience. It's about giving these companies a way to personalize the experience for their customers and give their customers the best possible experience that they can give them, which should be the foundation of any business. And we offer gambling operators a way to do that to their players. No, that makes a ton of sense, Martin. And, you know, we are a startup based podcast here and part of any startup, of course, is the capitalization side of all of this. So just wondering if you can give us a quick sense of any funding that ClearStake has done to this point and, you know, maybe talk a bit about uh, some of the folks that have backed ClearStake and have allowed you to, I guess, get to the point you're at. Yeah, yeah, sure. We've been super lucky in terms of funding so far. I mean, I started off with friends and family. I'm sure that's a, a path well known to your listeners and to your other guests. You know, go around your friends and family and that's how you start. Then we were super lucky. We fell into an angel network within the industry quite early on, which came through my own network. Um, 
a family friend of ours called Adam Perrin. He was super high up at Paddy Power back in the, what he calls the good old days. And Adam's been you know, extremely, extremely supportive in terms of the advice he's given and also his personal investment in bringing his network to the table. So via Adam, we secured investment from Oliver Slipper, who was the founder of one of the founders of Stats Perform, also Paddy Power. Not the company Paddy Power, but actually Paddy, who you'll see on the, the Paddy Power adverts, whose father was one of the co-founders. And from there, the, the network just increased. So through these guys, we met Cormac Barry, who's been hugely influential in the industry. He was very senior at Paddy Power and was CEO of Sports Bets in Australia, which is Flutter's arm down there, uh, and brought on some of the Paddy Power old guard. Then in our last round, we were really lucky. We picked up investors in Australia and the US. So uh, Tom Cregan, who's the ex-CEO of EML Payments, Sam Swannell, who's the CEO of PointsBet. And then in the US, we picked up uh, Seth Young and Dan Zucker, who I know are uh, friends of yours. So we've been really, really lucky because what that's done is given our cap table quite interesting dynamic across the UK, Australia, and the US. And what it allows us to do is have an, an ear in those markets and gives us a roadmap to expanding into those markets from the UK when the time is right. Well, I was going to say, you know, you sometimes read about the PayPal mafia and how the founders of PayPal went on and all do amazing things with uh, their next ventures. But I think in this case, it sounds more like it's the Paddy Power mafia. You got involved on your cap table here, isn't it? Yeah. And we're all the better for it. And yeah, huge thanks to all our investors who have not just parted with their, their money, but also their time and advice. I think a huge part of this journey, especially for myself as a first time founder, is having access to those guys who are better, smarter, more experienced and wiser who have done it before. So, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time on the phone to, for Adam, for example, I call Cormac, you know, I speak to the guys in Australia and America and there's constantly you know, a situation you haven't faced before, I wonder what they would do. And you, you call them and ask for advice. And that, that's, that's a huge part of this. And we're very lucky to have that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess as you look ahead over, let's say the next six months here between now and the end of 2023, what are some of the priorities for you and ClearSake? And I guess, what are some of the major milestones you and the team are working towards? Yeah, sure. So firstly, product, we live and die by product. We're product people and for us, what we're working on really intensely at the moment is developing uh, a native deployment into the operator's real estate. So it just gives the player the most seamless experience possible when they hit one of these con compliance walls. And we want to make a compliance wall a, a compliance mound. So you have this pretty much frictionless, seamless interaction to be able to share data with the operator and have a decision relayed back to you in, in almost real time. And that has a huge amount of benefits for the player and the operator. And I think we've touched on those already. Then outside of that, we'd like to sign our first UK tier one operator who's in multiple markets. And we're, we're, we're pretty close to that at the moment. And then close, we're just about to open funding round and we'd like to close that as well. So those are the three main priorities. Awesome. You have a busy six months ahead of you then it sounds like. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> Right on, Marnol. That takes us to my standard closing question. I'm not sure if you've heard it, so let me just quickly rattle it off for you. If you weren't working on ClearStake, nor in sports, or tech, or betting, or in any of your previous career chapters in a parallel universe, what would you be doing instead? Probably sleeping better and earning more money. Um, yeah, it's it's quite hard to consider a life outside what I'm doing right now. 
you know, as you'll know, as a, as a startup guy and a lot of your audience and previous guests will know it's, it's pretty much all consuming. It captivates every fiber of your being. It's the thing you wake up at three in the morning thinking about how you can do a product better. How can you construct that contract better? You know, it takes all your time and energy. Um, so it's quite hard to think what I'd be doing outside of it. I think if I'm honest, there's been, I guess, sacrifices, that, you know, I've got little children now and the startup journey and the startup family, like, yeah. you know, did I is both at the same time, there have been challenges and, you know, I think for example, my wife had a very successful career and she left that to run the starting up of the family. And I got to go and follow my dreams and run my startup. So to be honest, I think what I'd be doing is moving back and allowing her to follow her dreams and supporting her in that and running the family startup instead and allowing her to do what she wants to do because she's brilliant and reserves to be able to do it. Absolutely. Team effort, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that it is <laughs> for sure. Awesome, Martin. For folks listening that would like to learn maybe a bit more about ClearStake and or get in touch with yourself, can you point them towards where they can go do that? Yeah, sure. You can email me at martin at clearstake.com um, or you can go to our website, www.clearstake.com and look forward to receiving your emails and answering any questions unless you're looking for a vegan steak, in which case <laughs> I'll send you to someone else. Well, well Martin, uh, it's been great to have you with us on the podcast today. Really enjoyed chatting with you and really wishing you and your team all the best for the rest of the year ahead and look forward to continuing to follow your progress. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, really appreciate it. Have a great day. Bye.